Hello and welcome to episode 148 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. Last week, if you recall, we looked at the life and crimes of the so-called corner man, Andy Baker. As he moved from the doors of clubs in Surrey to murder trials, drugs and extreme violence. Today we conclude this story by continuing to link the events of last week, as well as covering other new incidents. If you didn't listen last week, perish the thought, I strongly suggest you do so before you listen to this episode. I'm delighted that this week's show is sponsored by Stitch Fix. Those of you who have met me will know just how stylish I am. Okay, maybe not. Not then, but I am now due to Stitch Fix. As you know, Finding the perfect item of clothing can feel great, but shopping for it is anything other than delightful. I don't want to be trawling around the shops on a Saturday afternoon when I could be watching the Mighty Leeds United at Ellen Road and sizing on websites. Well, they can be a bit hit and miss. This is where the online service from Stitch Fix helped me. After filling in a quick questionnaire about my personal style, size and wants, a personal stylist sent to my door five items of clothing, each hand-picked for me from a selection of a hundred of the best European brands, including established names, cool emerging designers and exclusive brands. A brilliant opportunity to discover new clothing that I probably wouldn't have found on my own. I loved the choices and kept each item, but if I hadn't, I'd have just sent it back free of charge. Just so easy and low risk. What isn't there to like? The awesome news is that Stitch Fix have a special offer for listeners to this podcast. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support my podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash true right now. That's s-t-i-t-c-h-f-i-x dot co.uk forward slash true. Today's show is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the UK's leading recipe box service delivering fresh pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes to your door. It's the easy, convenient way to cook delicious dinners from scratch every time. Choose your favourites from 19 recipes every week, including rapid recipes, ready in 20 minutes or less, family favourites, British and world cuisine, and even a balanced low-calorie range. And because all their fresh ingredients come direct from their suppliers, pre-portioned for you, there is no food waste. Did you know that the average household has six recipes that they stick to? Does that sound like you? If so, HelloFresh will help get you out of your cooking rut with 19 recipes to choose from every week and step-by-step tried and tested recipes, which will always turn out great. It really is that easy and delicious too. Enjoy delicious moments with HelloFresh. Head to hellofresh.co.uk Choose a box, a delivery slot, and add your favourite recipes. Discover the easy way to delicious dinners from scratch. HelloFresh are offering my listeners an amazing £60 off four boxes. Just visit hellofresh.co.uk and use the promo code TRUECRIME. That's right, HelloFresh will give you £60 off four boxes. Just visit hellofresh.co.uk and use the code TRUECRIME. A huge thank you, as always, to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Helen Sims, Sheila Morris and Ashley. I'm so, so grateful for your support 
which enables me to keep producing this weekly free content. Thank you so much. Let's quickly set some context today by taking a look at the music we were listening to, or not, when the first serious event we discussed took place in December 2002. The best-selling single of 2002 in the UK was Enrique Iglesias with Hero. Amazingly, Gareth Gates was at number three for his massacre of Unchained Melody. Now there's a crime. Top-selling single in the US this month was The Small Fish, Stickleback, with How You Remind Me. (laughs) Eminem was the top-selling single in Australia with Without Me, with a noticeable mention at number five for the catch-up song by Last Ketchup. A popular first dance at weddings, I'm told. In the news this month, cinemas were packed with the release of another Lord of the Boars films, The Two Yawns. LinkedIn was founded by Reid Hoffman and others. In the UK, Cherie Blair apologised for the embarrassment caused due to her links with convicted fraudster Peter Foster. The BBC's political flagship programme, On the Record, finished after 14 years. And in UK true crime news, Shayed Nazir, Ahmed Ali Awan and Safraz Ali were all convicted of the racist murder of Ross Parker in Peterborough. Just before we start, I must again reference The Cable in Bristol, which ran four amazing articles on Andy Baker, featuring stunning investigative journalism. Do take a read and consider making a donation to support their outstanding journalism. The story was also featured in Vice, which is where I first heard of Andy Baker. Links to both are in the show notes. In last week's show, you will recall how we covered the murders of Gilbert Winter and Solly Nahome, both of whom were career criminals who worked for the Adams crime family. Police intelligence suggested that Andy Baker was a suspect in both crimes. We'd also just started to look at the murder of 23-year-old prison officer Aaron Chapman, who was moonlighting as a doorman and also had a number of relationships with a wide variety of women. Unluckily for him, one of these happened to be best mates with the daughter of a violent and powerful criminal, Chris McCormack, who was a former soldier and known as the commander for his incredible knowledge of his specialist subject, cash and transit robberies. He was very well connected, including with the Adams family, and had recently been acquitted of the most horrific of crimes. He'd faced court accused of attacking the Adams family's Mayfair financier, David McKenzie. The family were alleged to have ordered the attack after McKenzie lost £1.5 million for them in bad investments. Not ones to take this loss lightly, as maybe you and I would. They demanded the finance man repaid the money, and when he couldn't, he was summoned to a meeting at the home of the Adams's brother-in-law, where he was allegedly assaulted by McCormack. The financier said in court that he'd been kicked and beaten, had three ribs broken, and was slashed about the face and wrist with a knife. To give you an idea of just what a brutal assault he suffered, his nose and left ear were left flapping, held on by just slivers of skin. Imagine it. Two tendons in a hand were also severed, as he attempted desperately to defend himself, terrified for his life. As we are getting used to hearing in this story, despite strong evidence including DNA linking McCormack to the attack, the jury chose to find him 
not guilty. The cable reports that police intelligence at the time of Aaron Chapman's murder suggested that McCormack was putting together a weapons deal with Andy Baker and as a favour for Aaron Chapman upsetting his daughter's friend, he had asked Baker to send a warning to Aaron Chapman. To deal with this, in December 2002, Baker sent three of his closest associates to warn Chapman to stay away. They were Baker's childhood friend James the Weasel Pearson, the school friend allegedly involved in the murder of Gilbert Winter, and doorman Mark Robocop Dawling, both of whom were already involved in the weapons deal. And finally, there was John the Barber Gordon, who knew Robocop from debt collecting and door work. But things didn't go to plan. Looking at the transcript from the trial, it seems that after they turned up at Chapman's house, it all started to go wrong. Robocop Mark Dawling gave Aaron Chapman a punishment strike of a knife slash to the face in his home. He and the other two were due to be paid 10k for this piece of violence. But Chapman was a strong bodybuilder who hadn't read the script, and he fought back. For doing so, he was stabbed 14 times to the head and body, and left bleeding to death on the door of his own home. As he lay dying, Aaron Chapman dialed 999, but he didn't reveal the identity of his attackers. Let's return to the information provided by David Duff. Remember him? The disgraced solicitor and former associate of Baker, who was in the witness protection scheme after fearing for his life following a fallout with Baker. He told detectives that immediately after the murder of Aaron Chapman, Robocop Dawling, followed in short succession by Pearson and then Baker, arrived at his flat in a panic. My secretary was there, and she had to bandage a bad cut on Robo's arm, Duff recalled. The secretary was prepared to sign a witness statement confirming this, and for doing so, she too was taken into witness protection, showing again the massively high stakes involved in giving evidence against these men. Would you be prepared to give evidence in a similar situation, knowing that your life would change forever by doing so? I'd like to think so, but I wonder. The Met Police put Dawling under surveillance and eventually arrested him in November 2003 in possession of firearms, which they thought was connected to the Baker-McCormack arms deal. The case went to court and Robocop Dawling was jailed for the firearms offence in April 2004. When he was in custody, his girlfriend corroborated Duff's story about Chapman's murder by saying that Dawling had confessed to his role in the killing. For this, now his ex-girlfriend, she too was put in witness protection. When the Chapman murder trial began, Dawling claimed that he was walking his dog at the time of the killing. But his associate, fellow gang member Pearson, turned on Dawling and told the jury that this was a lie and he was actually at the scene. This sealed all of their fates, and Dawling was given life for murder. Pearson, 13 years, had been the getaway driver, but astonishingly, John Gordon was acquitted, despite having been rushed to hospital for stab wound to his leg on the night of Chapman's murder. Just what made Pearson change his story? It's hard to believe that this was due to a desire to help see justice served by doing so, because If he had done, he must have known the issues this was going to cause for him in prison. 
so someone must have influenced him and wanted Robocop Dawling in prison. Was this the work of Andy Baker? Sentencing Dawling to life imprisonment, Judge Giles Forrester said he accepted the attack was only meant to wound Aaron Chapman, but added, this was a professional contract attack which turned into a killing. It was also carried out for gain and extensive injuries were inflicted upon Aaron Chapman. With all this interest in him, Baker felt it was time to get out of the limelight a bit and with his wife and son they moved to Biddeford, North Devon. At this time he ticked over, making some cash helping new club owners take what they could from the remains of the Ponanar group, remember them? Which had gone bust in 2002, with 35 venues up for grabs. Meanwhile, although detectives believed that Baker had played a part in the murders of Gilbert Winter, Solly Nahome and Aaron Chapman. The main information for this had come from solicitor David Duff and other sources which were unlikely to be seen as credible in court. And shortly after the Aaron Chapman murder trial, Andy Baker was again acquitted by a jury after the incident at Queen's Park Rangers Football Club, covered in depth in episode 146 of this podcast. Then finally, a break for the exasperated detectives. Baker split with his loyal wife Vanessa, who provided so many alibis to cover his tracks in the past. She had found out about one affair too many, and there were also issues over money, which had compelled her to finally make that break. Again, what a huge call for her to make. In her debriefings, Vanessa confirmed what Duff had told police, and said that Baker had confessed to her about his involvement in the three murders. And shortly after this, more valuable information implicating Baker. From his cell, Mark Robocop Dawling wrote to the police, saying that he hadn't killed Aaron Chapman, but he implicated Baker, his childhood friends Jane Pearson, and the commander Chris McCormack. He'd kept quiet and taken the rap, due to the threats to his family ahead of the murder trial. He told how prior to the murder, He was at a meeting in a hotel in Chelsea between McCormack and Baker when McCormack passed Baker a brown envelope containing Aaron Chapman's deals, which effectively sealed Aaron Chapman's fate. But he said he wasn't involved in the murder, blaming James Pearson and another unknown man. He continued to say that the meeting where the brown envelope was passed was all around Baker arranging to collect firearms from McCormack and Chapman was just a side issue. The cable reports in Dawling's letter. He also implicated Baker and Pearson in the murders of Winter and Nahome, which backed up the information detectives had received from David Duff and Vanessa Heather. In particular, on the Winter murder, Dawling wrote, Baker had told me that he'd been involved in Winter's murder, and Pearson had told me that he'd been left to dispose of the body. This was done in a scrapyard in Stretton Vale. It was said that at first Winter's body had been engulfed in concrete, but after nine months the smell was secreting from it. The concrete block was moved to the scrapyard and Pearson dismantled the block and the body was got rid of. It was Winter's death that prompted Baker to move out of the London area to Devon for fear of reprisals from the people that Winter was close to. Finally, in November 2009, 
Detectives believed they had enough evidence to charge Baker with causing GBH to Aaron Chapman, firearms possession, the shooting of a rival doorman in Bristol, where Baker was now operating, and also for making death threats to David Duff. But Baker, of course, had a good lawyer, who managed to get these charges dismissed before the case even got to court, arguing that the delayed charges were a manipulation and that Baker would be unable to get a fair trial. But Andy Baker would eventually face justice. There is so much more we could talk about here, including his aspirations to be a football agent and his property dealings. But in the interests of time, let's just concentrate on the ill-fated deal where his luck finally ran out. You probably recall from the tabloids the murder in April 2014 of millionaire Bristol jeweller Andrew Bush in the Costa del Sol. He was shot dead by his 24-year-old ex-girlfriend, swimwear model Maker Kakakova, due to her jealousy over his new relationship. There was lots of speculation at the time about Andrew Bush's business interests, and some commentators were drawn into speculating how the killer had somehow managed to use an untraceable gun to murder him, almost as if somebody else had wanted to have him killed. But of course there was no evidence for this. Andrew Bush's main jewellery business, Gold Trader Jewellers, was located in the centre of Bristol, and following his death it was bought by two local businessmen, Clive Moore, an old gym pal of Andrew Bush, who ran a security company in the city which controlled a number of the club doors, and Matt Sellers, a former mixed martial arts British lightweight champion, now 40, who had moved into the somewhat precarious business of owning local nightclubs. The two had been doing well financially until recently, when they lost a large sum of money trying to expand their nightclub business, when two large investments they made went disastrously wrong. But then the two received a visitor at Andrew Bush's old jewellers from a man named Carlos. They decamped to the local boozer, and over a beer he told them that the Adams crime family had been owed £60,000 by Bush before his death, and they now wanted this money back. Carlos was there to collect the debt. Sellers was in a desperate financial position after the recent bad deals, and he was starting to doubt everyone around him. As we have heard so many times on this podcast, in the criminal world it's like the vultures can smell blood and they circle their prey, however close their personal relationship has been in the past. Sellers wondered if his business partner, Moore, was setting him up and working with Carlos in an attempt to take the jewellers away from him as he knew he was at his most vulnerable. He sounded out a few people to take advice. And this ended up in a meeting with Andy Baker, who said he was happy to facilitate a meeting with sources close to the Adams family to get to the bottom of the issue. Baker was as good as his word and set up a meeting in Hatton Garden, when Sellers was reassured to hear that the Adams family actually had no interest at all in his jewellery business. But in Andy Baker, Sellers now had someone close to him who would call in this favour again and again. And at this time, as Baker was potentially exploring setting up a sports management company, he saw Sellers and his background in MMA as someone who would potentially be able to introduce him to some well-known people. Baker also noted that Sellers didn't seem hardened like most of the criminals in his world, 
and he clearly looked up to Baker for advice and guidance. He also came from a wealthy background, which Baker calculated could be useful to him in the future. Having moved away from the Bristol nightclub scene over the years, taking most of his cut from the doors he controlled in London, Baker saw working closer with sellers as the opportunity to start making some more money from Bristol clubs, an area he had dominated in the past. Baker was genuinely astonished that seller's partner Clive Moore ran so much of the security on the doors and was at one stage recorded telling a close associate, Adam Hoddynott, I didn't realise Clive had sneaked in and almost took over all of Bristol by doing nothing. He hasn't even bashed anyone. Old school, huh? The man he was telling this to, Adam Hoddynott, was an interesting character himself. Although in his late 40s, he was a big unit, 20 stone of pure muscle, a very physically intimidating man. He had 25 convictions for violence and drugs and had not long been released from the slammer after being convicted of importing cocaine. With his extensive range of contacts, Baker started to help sellers by introducing him to people in the nightclub business who might be able to help him bail him out. But when this failed, and sellers became even more desperate, teetering on the edge of losing everything, Baker reverted to some tried and tested ways of making cash for him, personally, out of what was happening to sellers. With Adam Hoddynott, he approached the boss of the Mirias Group, which had bought one of Sellers' clubs. Hoddynott told the boss that unless he was paid £20,000, which he claimed was still owed to Sellers, and he was collecting on his behalf, then he would burn down his house and kill him. Old school tactics again, but ones which had consistently worked for Baker during his criminal career. But this time the target wasn't intimidated by the threat, and instead went straight to the police. This led to the South West Regional Organised Crime Unit in May 2017 to bug the cars of Baker and Hoddynott to see just what else they were up to. And this move produced a wealth of information about their web of extortion and intimidation in the South West and along the M4 corridor. Detectives watched as they actively targeted shops across the South West, offering them protection, especially barbers and tattoo shops, taking their share of the profits from the owners who felt they had no choice but to pay. They saw in the news very clearly what happened when owners chose not to be compliant. For example, in August 2015, the Sanity Tattoo Parlour near Bath was rammed by a car and set alight, causing over £100,000 in damages, and the couple who ran the show only narrowly managed to escape personal injury. The two hired thugs who committed the crime were apprehended and faced court, but they didn't say where they had taken their orders from, as they were each sentenced to seven years in jail. The judge was absolutely convinced that they were working for more senior criminals, saying, This was a professional operation, targeting premises for reasons that were never disclosed or discovered. And then in August 2017, a local bodybuilder called Liam War admitted two charges related to the intimidation of local businesses again around the Bath area. He poured petrol through the letterbox of a newly opened tattoo shop and burnt down a local barber shop. Again, he was caught, and like the two men in the previous case, 
War didn't talk about who he was working for, but detectives quickly established his close links to Adam Hoddinott. And the information from the bug cars of Hoddinott and Baker clearly showed that every week the pair were collecting regular money from barbers and tattoo shops who had agreed to pay them a cut. So it was strongly suspected that the ones that didn't were the ones that were targeted. But although this was serious enough, the information was also pointing to other crimes. And it was drugs that finally cornered the cornerman. John the Barber Gordon, remember him? The one who was acquitted of being involved in the murder of Aaron Chapman? He was importing a kilo of pure cocaine into London, and Adam Hoddinott, Baker's right-hand man in the intimidation business, was buying. Well, he would have been buying if he could afford it. So Baker had given John Barber a personal guarantee that Hoddinott was good for the £36,000 wholesale price once the gear had been sold on the streets. Sellers was also in on the deal to help improve his financial position. But unbeknown to the gang, the police bugs and surveillance meant that they knew exactly what was happening. And on the 1st of February 2018, when the drugs were transported on the M4 from London to Bristol, they were watching. Liam Waugh, another familiar name, picked up the drugs and took the passages back to a safe house that was also a drugs factory turning out industrial supplies of ecstasy tablets. This was a huge business. They had a machine there which could produce 93 pills a minute. The police swooped and four of the gang were arrested immediately at the house, followed by Sellers and Hoddinott on the 22nd of February, and shortly afterwards Andy Baker and John the Barber Gordon. Hoddinott proved, surprisingly, to be the weak link in the gang, and immediately confessed to the drugs offences in addition to extortion and intimidation, making it easier for the rest of the gang to be charged. The cable tells how on the evening of his arrest, Baker acted very oddly. They report, and I quote, Baker gave a strange speech to the police which left the impression that while he wasn't going to name some names, he was in a position to trade others in return for his liberty or a lighter sentence, he said. Listen, in my circle of people I stand quite high, and I won't give up anyone around me. There's things that I know, that I do know, and you know I know because I'm a bastard. I ain't going to bullshit you. I could put on the table what I can put on the table. I've lived my life as a fucking man. But nothing ever materialised from this as far as we can tell, but who knows? At the trial in December 2018, nine of the gang members were sentenced to over 70 years in jail for their part in a conspiracy to supply over £70,000 of cocaine and £500,000 of ecstasy. Baker and Hoddinott were also convicted of conspiracy to blackmail following their intimidation of local businesses in the South West. Aside from the drugs, the court heard of the reality of the terror that Baker and Hoddinott inflicted on normal people not involved in crime but just who happened to own small businesses. How they threatened and intimidated in order to make their victims fear for their own safety and the safety of their families. For example, one victim was approached while on a golf course by one of the crime group members who was tasked with taking him to a meeting with two other members 
in a nearby car park. One of the offenders told him, I know where you live and I will hurt you and whoever I need to hurt to settle the debt. Can you just imagine the reality of this in your life? After sentencing, talking directly to Baker and Hoddinot, the judge said, What each of the two of you brought to the conspiracy was, in your case, Baker, a somewhat subtle but unmistakable menace, and in yours, Hoddinot, physical intimidation or the threat of it. He also commented on how so many of the gang wanted to please Baker, who was clearly the leader. As he was sent down to begin his 11-year and 6-month sentence, Andy Baker paused, looked at the judge and sang, I fought the law and the law won. The judge, not a fan of the clash, still understood the sentiment, replying, I couldn't put it better myself. Do you recall from the last episode Martin Spooner, the wealthy and well-connected nightclub owner who Andy Baker forged a relationship with in the early days? After Baker's conviction, the cable spoke to Spooner and published the following about his reaction to Baker being sent to prison, and I quote, Spooner, who owns pubs and a racehorse with Paul's heir Guy Sangster, said he didn't believe Baker was a gangster until his recent conviction. I'd no idea. I thought he was a bit of a geezer that liked to drop loads of names. He didn't drop gangster names on me. He dropped posh, rich, influential people's names that he claimed to know, to do business with. It was all lords and ladies. So what do you make of what we've heard these last two weeks? Quite a story, I think. The murders of Solly Nahome and Gilbert Winter remain unsolved. Mark Robocop Dawling continues to plead his innocence in the involvement in the murder of Aaron Chapman, but he remains behind bars. And Baker and the rest of the gang convicted in December 2018 all remain as guests of Her Majesty's Hotel Service. I've had a few thoughts about some of the more minor aspects of what we've heard. Why do so many of the career criminals we've spoken about have nicknames? It isn't like that in my professional life. Is it the same at your workplace? It reminds me more of school. And why do so many of them take such huge risks with their freedom for such little reward? Some of the sums of money we've spoken about today don't seem to be worth the risks taken of losing liberty for an extended period of time, don't you think? Nearly all would have made much more money in a so-called proper job. But then I guess that after a while for many, the money isn't what it's all about after a while. It's about living that gangster life where they are the big man and accountable to nobody. Is that what becomes appealing? I just don't get it. And what of Andy Baker, the cornerman? Is he still running some of his businesses from his cell? I imagine so. And when he comes out in the next few years, will he be a reformed character looking to make an honest living? I can't say I'm convinced, do you? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please pop over to the Facebook group. We're approaching 3,500 members and you'll be made very, very welcome. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime where you will find over 33 bonus full-length episodes for a couple of quid a month. This support helps me pay for access to the internet 
while I still wait for BT to rectify their errors. Seriously, they make the second worst company I've dealt with these last couple of years, ADT, look efficient. And that is saying something. Please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime to join our special club. And don't forget to visit the sponsors of this week's show if you can. Just head to stitchfix.co.uk slash true to get started with your new clothes and to hellofresh.co.uk where you should use the code TRUECRIME for your discounts. So that's all for me for today. Time for me to stop looking out the window, wondering what on earth happened to the summer this year. Did I miss it? Well, until we speak again next week, if you're going into the tattoo shop business in the southwest, or whatever else you are planning, please mind who you associate with, and most of all, stay classy. Cheerio for now. <laughs>